So, thank you, Kate, for your welcome and for all the preparation you've done to bring us here together for a, a, a day without shopping and without emails and without planning uh, for the busyness of this time of the year. So a time really where we can reflect and prepare for a spiritual celebration of the birth of Christ. And uh, we'll do that by meditating together. We'll begin with a, a time of meditation, first of all, and then also by calling on our friends from the great communion of teachers who have uh, enriched the Christian tradition and other traditions, uh, and who have given us precious jewels to be able to draw on for generations to come, uh, to understand the meaning of, of the cycles that we pass through. Advent is a, is, a, is a liturgical cycle, part of the liturgical year. We've already begun the new year uh, in the church's time frame. And uh, without this, these cycles of sacred time, the world begins to get very monochrome, very dull and very flat. We've replaced holy days with holidays. We've replaced uh, pilgrimages with package tours. There's nothing necessarily wrong in those things in themselves, if you're going on one. But uh, we've lost a lot by losing this uh, sense of sacred time weaving in, weaving in and out of ordinary time, of money time, of stressed time. And time has become very uh, two-dimensional, three-dimensional uh, as a result. So it's good, I think, for us to be able to take a longer period of time as we do uh, today and as we do every day with the daily meditation, but to take a longer period of time to, uh, to allow that innate color and the depth of field in our lives to become more present, more sensible, more, more visible. So today is also uh, the feast of St. John of the Cross, one of the great uh, mystical teachers of the Christian tradition. And uh, one of his probably most well-known concepts is the idea of the dark night of the soul, which is, if you feel depressed at any time, I advise you to read it, because it will cheer you up. It gives, uh, it doesn't sound very cheery, but actually it's a very profound exploration of the, of the paradox of, of light and dark in our lives and of how our lives um, are transformed by this, this other cycle of dying and rising, of losing and, and finding. 
and of purification and celebration. So I thought we might uh, begin today with one of his uh, most famous poems, who's also recognized as one of the, the great poets, if not the greatest poet in, in Spain. And this is um, a very famous poem that you, many of you will, will know. And we could begin with this because it will lead us into many of the uh, many of the insights and uh, many of the um, thoughts that we'll be sharing. So, in this uh, poem, the the narrator is the soul speaking to God and in particular to Christ. And uh, the soul is, as C.S. Lewis once said, the human soul is always feminine. So in, in this uh, poem, it, it's, it's cast dramatically as a, a, a woman's voice or female voice uh, speaking to her lover. On a dark night, Kindled in love with yearnings, O oh, happy chance, I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder, disguised, O oh, happy chance, in darkness and in concealment, my house being now at rest. In the happy night, in secret, when none saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart. This light guided me, more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well I knew who, was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. Upon my flowery breast, kept holy for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand he wounded my neck and caused all my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face I reclined on the beloved. All ceased and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. So this is one of the great mystical poems of, of all traditions. And uh, it's really what Christmas is about. It's about this uh, birthing of 
Christ, the Word of God, the self-expression of God in the depths of the human being. And it's about that, the drama as well, or the stages through which we pass in that long birthing. And although we, you know, we, we fix the celebration of, of the birth of, of Jesus on a particular day, obviously in connection with pre-Christian solar, uh, solar rituals, but although we fix it on a particular day, in terms of the mystical journey that the human life is, this is a birth that takes place throughout our life, from conception to our final departure. And in a sense, it's happening even before our conception, because if we see ourselves and everything that is, the world, if we see that as emerging from the being of God, which is eternal, then we are eternal too. God makes time, he's not bound by time. So we have existed as the mystical tradition, Meister Eckhart, who we'll look at a bit later, insists that we have existed or we have been for as long as God is. We've been in the mind of God uh, immemorially, timelessly, and we come out of that being into existence, into something visible and temporal and mortal. So this birthing of God that Christmas is about, the, the, the formation, the, the, the giving birth to God within the human soul, is something that uh, takes us into time because it occurs through stages, the stages of our life, the stages of this poem, the search, the journey, the, the consummation, uh, the rest, the resting in God. So it takes us through all these stages, each of them becoming more beautiful, more delightful and more satisfying and more fulfilling. And this poem is cast, of course, with, in, in the form of a, of, a, of a love poem with an erotic uh, imagery, as the mystics have always chosen this erotic language or this language of love to express this uh, this process of, of birthing and transformation that is the human, the meaning of the human being. And it's this, uh, it's this unfolding of love within the, the, the depths of the soul, manifesting itself in the beauty of our world, the beauty of experience, the beauty of our own lives, the beauty of the light and shade and the light and darkness uh, of life. It's this, it's this uh, birthing that Christmas is about and that we've come to try to reflect on a little this morning and today. So, but let's begin with a, a short, uh, with, a, with meditation. Not so short, we're not in a hurry. 
Um, and uh, many of you, I know, by looking at you, have been treading this path uh, day by day for, for a long time. Some of you perhaps may have not meditated since this time last year and would like a restart. And maybe for some of you, usually this is the case, whenever a group of people meet to meditate, there will be some who are quite new to this particular way of meditation or to meditation itself. So let me um, remind you uh, of this simple and transformative path of meditation that has brought about our community, uh, that is the heart of the center here, Meditatio Center, and of course our new home in Bombay and our community uh, around the world. So the way of meditation is a way of simple practice, not of thought, not of uh, self-analysis or self-motivation, uh, really. It's a simple practice that's best understood and most beautifully practiced by, by children. And I was meditating with a group of nine-year-olds uh, not long ago in a classroom. And they hadn't meditated before, but I wasn't surprised that they went very quickly into nine minutes of, of great deep silence. And I've learned over the years not to uh, ask children afterwards if they have any questions about meditation, because the only question they usually have is, can I ring the bell? <laughs> so, but I asked them, uh, did you, you know, what, would you like to say anything, or did you like it? Did you like the meditation? And they're very responsive to that, because they, they do like it, and uh, they can do it, and they like to do it, and they ask for it. So the first two children who put up their hands, one of them said, in a very non-judgmental tone of voice, but I caught the eye of the teacher uh, as he said it, was, I think that's the quietest we've ever been in this room. <laughs> and then another boy put up his hand, and he said, and he was moving his arms or his hands like, like that in a rather confused way as he spoke. And he said, while we were meditating, I wasn't playing with my hands. So I couldn't, didn't know really what he meant, but his teacher told me afterwards that this poor child, nine years old, was already quite badly addicted to video games and uh, often couldn't make it to school in the morning because he was too tired. He'd been playing games all night, I suppose, under his sheet or somewhere. And, um, and I thought what, probably what he was saying was, even when he's not in front of the screen, his mind is caught up in these obsessive movements and obsessive, obsessive concerns. Thinking, he's thinking about video games and playing them. But for those few minutes of meditation, he was free from that. And both of those comments, I thought, gave a real insight into the meaning of, and the nature of meditation. 
As soon as we meditate, we realize that we are capable of being in silence and in stillness. That these are not frightening states to be in. They're natural and they enrich and refresh us in themselves. That we are, we are made, designed and called to uh, build times of stillness and silence into our life. And as we do, we realize it. We become aware of the value and the importance of this contemplative uh, dimension of, our, of ourselves and the need for this. So the more we meditate, the more we, we are aware and grateful, people are usually grateful for having found meditation. Um, so it, it, the experience itself teaches us and the tradition from which we teach the desert, the Christian desert tradition, the early Christian monks uh, say this very explicitly, experience is the teacher. So it's not from other people that we learn what meditation is or, or from John of the Cross or anybody else, we learn it uh, through our own experience. But our own experiences different from other kinds of experience. So it's a, a first unfamiliar, but very quickly we recognize it and appreciate it as something valuable and necessary in our life. Well, very quickly, it depends, depends on how attuned we are to it. And the second child, I thought gave us another gave me another insight into the, the nature and the value of meditation as a, as a way of liberation, as a way of rewriting some of those patterns of consciousness, patterns of mind, obsessive thoughts, uh, preconceptions we have about ourselves, ideas about our own character or our own problems and giving us a direct experience of, of the possibility of transformation, that we can change, that we are not held in the grips of addiction or of repeating the same negative patterns or being trapped in certain uh, self-rejecting uh, images of ourselves that there is something liberating and, and life-giving and expansive about this experience of meditation. Now, the way we meditate is very simple. So you might say, could anything so simple produce so many benefits? Well, the only way is to find out, of course. The way of meditation according to that desert tradition, is a way of poverty of spirit, the first of the Beatitudes. Jesus outlined his program of happiness. The word Beatitude can also be translated as happiness. Happy are the poor in spirit, happy are the pure of heart, and so on. And the first of these uh, elements of happiness is poverty of spirit. The Christmas story itself uh, 
expresses this quality of poverty in the details of the birth of Jesus, the homeless family, the refugee family, uh, and a family that becomes dependent on the, the, the good-heartedness and generosity of the people around them. So right at the heart of this Christmas myth, the Christmas story that we, we are instructed by at this time of the year, we see this uh, quality of poverty of spirit. So poverty doesn't mean something negative. Uh, it's not just a socio-economic uh, term. Poverty is the ability to receive and to enjoy in the way that this poem of John of the Cross uh, is clearly enjoyable and delightful and satisfying and fulfilling and beautiful at every level. That poverty of spirit, very similar to the Buddhist idea of emptiness, is the ability to receive without possessing and therefore without being possessed by what we have. Obviously in a consumer society this is something that um, we, we find at first difficult to um, appreciate. Our conditioning is, is about acquiring and possessing, even on credit, but to possess, to acquire, to own, to have. But this wisdom of the first beatitude, which we practice in meditation, and we come to an insight into through meditation, is the, the wisdom of discovering that we don't have to fear letting go. We don't have to fear losing. Of course, losing something uh, can be frightening. It can generate all sorts of anxieties and earlier memories of loss. We don't like to lose things. But we don't like to lose our car keys. We don't like to lose our passport. We don't like to lose our memory. We don't like to lose our life. We don't like to lose those we love. So we don't look to lose. But we have to learn to lose. And we learn to lose because it's inevitable. Things are mortal, things are passing. We have to learn how to enjoy and to let go. And in a way, we then transform the bitter experience of loss into the liberating experience of letting go. And meditation teaches us this in the most direct way, the most immediate infusion of, of, of insight and experience. And it teaches us because in meditation, we enter into poverty of spirit by letting go of ourselves, and that means, in practice, our thoughts. We are, we have, we're carried along by a, a continuous stream of thought and imagination. We are constantly 
imagining or thinking or planning of the past or of the future, maybe the immediate future or maybe the distant future. So we are constantly, we are constantly being uh, bounced along, along that surface of the stream of consciousness. And most of the time, that's where we are, thinking what we have to do next, or maybe regretting or uh, thinking about what we have just done or, or, or seen. So, the one state that we are almost never in, except in moments of grace, is the present moment, which is the only moment in time where we are truly in reality. Everything else is imaginary. The past, we constantly reconceive and reimagine the past or the future, which of course is, is imaginative in itself. So meditation allows us to come into the present moment, and that's the real meaning of, of contemplation, being in the temple of the present moment. And we do that by what might seem at first a difficult or even negative practice, which is to lay aside our thoughts. But very quickly, we realize is a, a, a wonderfully liberating practice. And we may think at first that by laying aside our thoughts, we are going to become thoughtless or we're going to become you know, empty-headed. What we discover, of course, is that with a regular practice of meditation built into daily life, the way we think, the way we deal with the past, or the way we deal with the future, is greatly improved, enhanced. We can deal with the past and let go of the past, and we can prepare as much as we can for the future without becoming obsessed by it. So this returning to the present moment is really the heart of meditation. And in terms of that mystical idea that we've been looked at of the birth of Christ in the soul, then it's in that present moment that this birth takes place. And it transforms time and how we handle time. One of the most obvious benefits of meditation then, which is its main marketing uh, tool at, at the moment in our society, is it de-stresses, it reduces stress. And as people are greatly affected by stress today, meditation is often seen as a tool for dealing with stress. And it does that because by bringing us into the present moment, it changes our relationship to time. And we don't feel so harried and so hurried and so, uh, so anxious about time. So it's this laying aside of thoughts that is the heart of meditation. And 
In order to do that, we can't think our way out of thought. It, there is a radical letting go that we practice in order to lay aside the stream of thought, consciousness and imagination. And the way we do that in this tradition is to take a single word or a short phrase and to repeat this word or phrase gently in a childlike way and faithfully during the period of meditation. It's a, a simple and faithful practice. Choosing the word that we repeat and would continually return to during the meditation, choosing this word is important because you stay with the same word and return to the same word continuously. And this allows the word over time uh, to sink into the heart and then to become a kind of a built-in transformer or transformative presence in your consciousness in your daily life. So staying with the same word allows this, if you think of the word as a seed at first that you're, you're planting, it then uh, sinks uh, deeper into the nourishing soil of your, of your heart, as John of the Cross describes it. So, it's natural to take a word that is sacred in your own tradition, and uh, you could, in this tradition, you could take the name Jesus, very ancient Christian sacred word or mantra, or you could take the word Abba, a word that Jesus uh, used in his prayer, Abba, Father. But the word I, I would recommend is the word Maranatha. Maranatha is a beautiful mantra, Christian prayer word, for a number of reasons. It's one of the oldest Christian prayers, a sacred word. It means, come Lord. It's in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. And also the sound of the word, the, the long open vowel sound, and the, uh, and the four syllables make it a word that helps to calm the mind and our minds, we soon discover, are pretty, pretty turbulent and uh, um, distracted. Uh, and it also uh, allows you to say it rhythmically. I wouldn't get into too much of a technique uh, preoccupation at all certainly not at the beginning, but many people will say the mantra in rhythm with their breathing. So you might, for example, if you choose this word, say it as you breathe in, ma-ra-na-tha, as you breathe in, and then breathe out in silence. Or if you don't find that's comfortable, you could say the first two syllables, ma-ra, as you breathe in, and na-tha, as you breathe out. The important thing is not to divide your attention between the mantra and the, the breath, but to give your full attention, undivided attention, to the, to the mantra and to listen to it as you say it. At first, if you're 
just beginning to meditate, it feels as if you're, you're kind of trying to cross a busy street and uh, to avoid the traffic. Uh, so the idea of listening to the mantra might, might sound a little, um, uh, little far-fetched, because uh, it's just enough to say it. But, uh, you, but you'll find in time with practice that as the mantra sinks a little deeper into consciousness and as it, if, as it has its effect of calming the mind, that you are able to listen to it more acutely or more and more, uh, more, more, more generously. So you're, it's less about having to say it in competition with all your thoughts and it's more about listening to it even while the traffic is buzzing uh, around you. So but that's something that experience will, will teach you. So, so the art of meditation in this way then is not to blank out your mind but to accept the fact that your mind is busy and agitated and distracted. But the art of meditation is to say your word faithfully with all that traffic going on in your head at the same time. And to keep your focus returning, your attention returning to the word. That's the art of meditation. So even if you had to have a disastrous meditation now, and you're just thinking about whether you ordered your turkey in time or whether you should buy presents for somebody who didn't give you a present last year. Uh, so whatever sort of thoughts go through your mind, um, the art, you, you, have done, you have done a good meditation. You have meditated. If you have as faithfully as you can, nobody can do more than you can. So as faithfully as you can, you have faithfully returned to the word during the meditation. As, as you get distracted, whether it's for five seconds or five minutes or most of the meditation, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the faithful return to the mantra, to the word. And it's this faithful returning to the word that moves mountains. Faith moves mountains. Faith allows you to do what otherwise seems impossible. And it's the fidelity of the returning to the mantra that produces our deepest experience of what is happening what is at the heart, in the depth of our being, this birth of the Word of God. So, let's take a time to meditate now. The basic rule of posture is to sit with your back straight so that you can feel both relaxed and uh, alert. Jesus said, stay awake and pray. So just take a moment to do that. If you need to move your shoulders around or stand up and stretch for a second, you can do that. Basically, sit with your back straight, your feet on the ground. 
hands on your lap or on your knees, relax your shoulders, relax the muscles of your face. So comfortable, relaxed, but alert because we're doing a work of attention. We need to be fully present. And close your eyes lightly and just be aware of your breathing. This is the first little mindful step to prepare for the work of meditation. Just be aware of that cycle of breathing in and breathing out. And just to be aware of the breath like that helps us to begin to lay aside our thoughts, including our self-consciousness. If we give our attention to anything or anyone, we become free from the prison of our self-consciousness. And this simple work of attention also allows us to experience the joy, the gratitude, thankfulness for that experience of birth in the depth of our spirit. First step. So then the second step is gently to begin to repeat your word. And the word I suggest is Maranatha, four syllables, Maranatha. Articulating the word clearly in your mind, giving it your full attention, and returning to it as you get distracted. Without self-evaluation or judgment, just humbly returning to it as the work we are doing for this period of meditation. It's all we have to do. So don't visualize the word, but sound it, articulate it, and listen to it as you, as you repeat it, and keep returning to the word. Try and be as quiet as you can during the meditation. If you have to cough, try to cough contemplatively. And uh, otherwise, try to be as still as you can as well. And that stillness of body will help the mind to slow down and to wake up in the present moment. We could begin with this prayer that John Main composed to lead us into meditation. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the Spirit of your Son. Lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Before we um, 
Open up to some uh, conversation or questions that you might like to raise. Let's, let's just um, dip into this poem again by John of the Cross. And this is the first stanza. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In the Christian tradition, we often see two ways of describing this journey or this birthing that takes place in us, transformation. One is uh, a language of darkness, of unknowing, of not seeing, which I think uh, relates to a significant part of, of the experience. And the, but the other language is known as the mysticism of light, uh, where the imagery and the, the, the way of description emphasizes uh, what, what, what comes into sight, uh, experience that, that touches us and awakens us. So there's there are these two complementary um, ways of describing the, um, the experience itself. And when we're speaking about the experience, we're not just talking about an experience or certain types or series of experiences in meditation. John Main used to say, in meditation, nothing happens. And if it does, ignore it. And the purpose of that was to detach us and warn us that not to get hooked into uh, experiences or judging the meditation or looking for something to happen. Now, of course, if nothing happened, meditation wouldn't be worth doing. So something happens, but it doesn't happen in the form of an ordinary experience that we can... Uh, sometimes, of course, there are experiences, but these aren't as significant as this other level of experience, not a series of experiences, good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, a good meditation or a bad meditation, but this sort of ground. And Meister Eckhart, was he speaks about the ground of being. So it's, it's this level of experience which is, which is continuous. It's the substratum of, of, of a continuity. And it's in this, it's as we come closer to this, as this becomes more present and more conscious, uh, that's the transformative experience, becoming conscious of this. So, uh, so here, he's John of the Cross is speaking about a, a, the, the beginning of this process as a darkness. We don't see what's happening. That's many people's, most people's experience when they first begin to meditate, they, they often give up because nothing seems to be happening, and. Uh, 
they don't, they don't quite know what should be happening, if anything, and if nothing, then what's the point in doing it? So in these early stages of, of in being introduced to meditation, we need uh, to be supported, reminded, and encouraged uh, to, uh, to, to, to go into the darkness, as it were, not in a negative sense, but to go into a kind of experience that is unfamiliar to us, which we can't identify. We probably won't have much to write in our journal uh, about meditation. Um, so, but, we should, but on the other hand, something is drawing us into this. And the next line of the poem gives us an indication of what that is. Kindled in love with yearning. At the end of the day, what draws us into meditation is this love yearning, this hunger for love. Now, it may not seem like that, or we may have other kinds of love that we're yearning for. Uh, but fundamentally, what draws us into meditation and keeps us going is the, the deepest human yearning for love. And even though that may not make sense to us at first, I think it becomes increasingly obvious that that is what is sustaining us and drawing us and delighting us. It is the discovery that this yearning for love, which exists in the human human nature, in, in, in the human person, the deepest level, that this yearning for love is authentic. It's not, it's not, uh, it, 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 even if it doesn't seem to be immediately or fully satisfied, it's not going to be frustrated either. It's an authentic and meaningful and hopeful yearning of the human person for union, for fulfillment, uh, for, full, for full mutual recognition. So this is, again, language of the great mystics, and Rumi is one of the great love poets uh, of the Sufi tradition, uh, constantly speaking about this transformative discovery uh, of love. And then uh, John of the Cross goes on, I went forth without being observed. So he's describing leaving a house, my house being now at rest. So the house is quiet. What is the house? The house is, what is the house? Hmm? The soul, the self, the mind, our familiar identity, what we, our familiar address, you know, what we think of as home. So we're leaving that. It's, it's at rest. And we're not leaving it because the house is burning down, but we're, we're just moving out of ourselves going beyond our normal self 
the limitations of our usual self-consciousness. Again, an unfamiliar and sometimes disturbing experience for people at first. And one of the fruits of this practice, one of the fruits of meditation, is of course a new level and a new quality of self-knowledge. This may not be what people expect at first when they begin to meditate. They want looking for something to happen that will be an observable experience that, that I can recognize and identify. So something will happen to me and I will be able to talk about it or think about it. But what actually happens, of course, is that the, 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 the self, the I, undergoes a transformation. It's what actually happens at first is that I know myself in a different way. And he, sa he says, I went forth without being observed. What does that suggest to you? Hmm? In the night, yes. Okay, yeah, in the night. I went forth. So you're sitting down to meditate and you go forth without being observed. Hmm? In a place of quiet. Place of quiet, yes. Sorry, detachment. Could you say it a bit louder? Yes, thank you. This detachment where we let, by in the letting go, we're also letting go of observing ourselves. It's not just that there's no CCTV camera watching us, it's that we're not also watching ourselves. So it's not that, and of course, nobody else is watching either. And but even more than that, we, we begin to move beyond self-observation, self-consciousness. Again, unfamiliar experience for us because we are, we are almost our default way of, of, of being is that we observe ourselves, analyze ourselves, am I happy, am I fulfilled, am I doing the right thing, have I made a mistake, uh, what do I really want? So we're constantly monitoring and uh, assessing ourselves. So this reduces as the house, the mind becomes quieter, and our ego begins to uh, step down and reduce its activity, the feeling of separation, the feeling of being an observer, the objectifying of reality that we do all the time, assessing, judging the world and other people and ourselves from this supposedly objective point of view. So all of this just begins, doesn't necessarily just stop, but it certainly begins to reduce.
Anyway, we'll come back to that maybe. So, would anyone like to share any thoughts or raise any questions about what we've been looking at so far, thinking about so far? Mindfulness is is more important than than meditation. Um, well, that's a bit competitive. Uh, I think it depends. It depends on the the person who is in question and what they are looking for, and um, how they are approaching this this new step that they're taking, you know. I was just in talking or meeting with, for a few days with some students, MBA students, business students, and um, they're coming to the end of a six-week introduction to meditation, which is quite intensive, uh, but they take very seriously. And um, at the end, I, we have interviews with each of them and I was asking them, what did you, what brought you to meditation? Was it stress or wisdom? And it, I think each of them, probably at the beginning of the course, would have said uh, stress was a major reason, and an easily justifiable reason, you know, to, to take up meditation and of course it's why a lot of people would take up mindfulness as well. So that's very acceptable and you don't have to be embarrassed by telling somebody that you're doing these strange things, especially with mindfulness because everyone is doing it, uh, because you're feeling stress. So that's a good way for many people to get started. But I think that, and, and uh, as stress is reduced, and they, people begin to see that there is another way of being, or they recover very often, depends how long they've been stressed, I suppose, or, but often they, they recover the capacity to well, maybe simply enjoy life, and to see that life is more than just running from one damn thing after another and getting insomnia and having panic attacks and all in the, in the pursuit of success uh, or comp called competitiveness. So as they, uh, as they do de-stress and recover some sense of the joy of life and the quality of living, um, then I think the motivation changes. For, for many people. Many people will then say, what next? Okay, now I've got back to some normality and sanity, and I don't have to live like this, I don't know, rat in a cage. Uh, now I can begin to, uh, to live life more meaningfully, so what, what next? So then, wisdom begin, might begin to be uh, a motivation or a conscious uh, motivation.
So I don't think these are opposed to each other. Now, mindfulness uh, has become immensely successful because it is a secularized uh, form of techniques which are extracted from, of course, Buddhist tradition primarily. I mean, all religious spiritual systems have forms of mindfulness, ways of preparing you for deeper prayer or deeper spiritual exercise. Um, so it isn't that mindfulness is simply a Buddhist, a Buddhist concept. I think uh, if, if we looked at, at the Christian uh, spiritual system, we'd see many practices prayer practices that could be understood in this way as preparing you for a contemplative discipline or contemplative practice for taking the step into contemplation that St. John of the Cross talks about in The Dark Night. He says quite explicitly in this book, he says, at some point we feel drawn to contemplation. We may be very religious, at that time people were very religious. So we may be very religious and we may be getting a lot out of our devotional practices. A lot of consolation, a lot of inspiration, a lot of sweetness and so on. So we may be very satisfied with our prayer, life and devotions. But then something stirs something awakens, this love yearning that he speaks about, and we want more. Love always wants more. That's why St. Augustine said the one thing you can't do too much of is love. So, and then this sense of being drawn to something deeper triggers a, a, a new stage in, in one's spiritual journey. And um, he says that um, there will have to be a transition, and for many religious people especially, to let go of those forms of prayer that you found very satisfying and enjoyable and fulfilling and enriching, but to, to let go of them in order to go deeper. Doesn't, he doesn't actually say, well, he almost gives the impression you have to abandon them all. But I think what he's saying, you have to detach from them and realize there's something else. There's something more. And he says that is like a dark a night of the senses, because you're, you're sort of, he describes it quite vividly. Uh, it's like, you know, a baby being weaned or somebody coming off uh, some form of uh, satisfaction and gratification that they've got very used to and dependent on. But you have to detach from that if you want to go to the next step and to follow this love yearning that you're feeling, which is taking you into contemplation. So he says a lot of religious people will put up a big fight, kick and scream. And you know, it's religious people who have more problems with meditation uh, often than non-religious people. So, 
I think uh, we have to think of mindfulness in a broader, broader sense than just the popular form of mindfulness that is on the market at the moment and which has helped and helps many people. And I suppose if you felt I just, all I really want to do is to de-stress and uh, I'm quite happy just to de-stress and I don't, you know, I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual. Uh, I just want to be able to sleep better at night and uh, live without panic attacks and, and uh, feel calmer, then fine. If that's, if that's all you feel, then no one's forcing you to go the next step. But I think most people do at some point feel there's something more, as I hear that many times from people. So I think uh, there's no point in arguing about it. Uh, it's, it only makes sense if it makes sense uh, to you. And then you will look for, and I think we would say, uh, you may be guided to the, the next step and to the way you should take it and, and the tradition you should practice it in or the people, the community that you will find to be helpful companions uh, at that next stage. So, I mean, that's why uh, in talking about the, the relationship, say, between mindfulness as it's commonly understood today and meditation, I think it would be fair to say mindfulness is a, pre a preparation, can be seen as a preparation for meditation. And m many Buddhist teachers I know have some, would, would agree with that and would have some reservations about seeing mindfulness uh, as a closed system. You know, something that's just a product you, you, you buy and, and use or take uh, for merely dealing with immediate issues and problems in a more self-centered way. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but they would say it is, it is incomplete and a bit worrying to them that it, it can be extracted from the full picture, the full context. So you could say mindfulness is a way of preparing for meditation, and that makes sense. John Main speaks about, um, and, the, and the Christian spiritual tradition often spoke about immediate preparation. It's difficult to you know, come straight off the computer and go straight into meditation. You need a bit of transition. That might be a bit of yoga or some stretching or some breathing or waking up in, in some way. It could be physical preparation. It could be you know, the reading of scripture. It could be listening to some music and, uh, or a combination of them. And in Bonveau, for example, we, we have the divine office. We've developed, well, we've, we've simplified and the divine office um, has the context in which we meditate. So we go into the chapel, we sit down, we begin the office, 
quite slowly, more slowly and more, more mindfully uh, than many people would be used to doing it. Usually the office is something you sort of get through uh, quite quickly and you've got all these psalms and prayers and little bits and pieces of the office which are beautiful in themselves and have been crafted over many centuries and if you've got a group of monks who can sing Gregorian chants it's delightful, beautiful, but is it an end in it? I would say that's a mindful practice or preparation for meditation and if you look at the early the early desert tradition of monasticism um, that's exactly what it was seen to be. The office, vocal prayer, you know, what happens in churches all over the place, that this was seen as a preparation for, for a deeper interior work of contemplative prayer. And so, if you take out that preparation, element from vocal prayer or worship as, as we normally understand it church stuff church services monastic office if you take out the, this preparatory element of it then you have something uh, it may be very beautiful or for many people very dull but it, it's incomplete and th what it has come to be seen as is as something we are offering to God. We come into church to send up this praise to God like incense. And it's going up to God and, and God is really pleased that we've all come out on a cold Sunday morning and sit in uncomfortable benches and praise God's name. Okay. So, and I think that uh, appeals less and less to most people. It's not that there's, it's bad in itself, it's just it's incomplete. Whereas when you look at the early uh, church, those times of vocal prayer or the reading of scriptures were not seen primarily as prayer going up, praising God, but as the word of God coming down into us. So they were seen, it was seen as an alexio divina, a listening to the word of God. And therefore it was conducted and, and spoken and the words were spoken more mindfully, more contemplatively so that you could Listen, so you, could, you don't have to have so many psalms or so many bits and pieces, you know. And uh, you can do it other times if you like, but essentially in terms of a regular practice of prayer, as in, our, in the Bombo community, it makes sense to have a simplified form of the, the divine office as a preparation for meditation in which we listen to the Word of God and if, it's, if they're well read it's very difficult to get Christians to read scripture properly. It, they want to read it quickly but if you really read it 
carefully, then the, the word becomes alive and active. And it touches the mind and, and moves into the heart. And then with pauses, with the right kind of quiet time, the silence in between the readings, not too many, and a chant, which also prepares the mind and the body as well as music does, then you're ready for meditation. And you go, you slip into it very naturally, you've been well prepared, and then after the meditation, you can listen to some more uh, scripture and, uh, and end in some other quiet, appropriate way. So it's framed in that context. So I would say that's a kind of mindfulness uh, which, is, which is properly used as a preparation for the time of meditation. But, um, so I don't, think, I don't think they are meant to be in competition at all. But I think it's important to see a difference between the preparation and the practice. And uh, with the popular understanding of mindfulness today, that, that isn't very clear to many people. And talking about these MBA students, it was quite a, it, it's a bit, it, it, it comes to them usually halfway through the, the course, and they're trying to meditate every day, it suddenly clicks that what these two terms mean and how, how the preparation uh, is distinct from the, the deeper practice. Well, I mean, one of, one of the um, elements of that first stanza of St. John of the Cross's poem there is solitude. So he, he the, the, the poet or the, the person is coming, coming out of their house on a dark night and following this love yearning to take them uh, on this journey uh, in the dark at first. And I think you could say that that solitude is, is reflected in that image of the seed, a single seed, a very small little seed that is that contains in itself this unbounded potential. In the emptiness of the seed, there is the big tree or the big bush that is waiting to be born, waiting to flourish. So, uh, so I think the first thing about the, the planting of the seed, in other words, the beginning of the journey of meditation in which we in this way, take our word and allow the word to fall little by little through daily practice, uh, through the, the layers of the soil until it reaches the right, until it reaches the heart, into rich soil. And it's as in the parable of the, the, the sower, a lot of the seed seems to just get scattered and 
you know, spring up and then dies and blown away by the birds or eaten by the birds. And I think that describes the early process of uh, learning to say the mantra. Because you say it for a little bit and then you get lost and then some hungry vulture comes and some thought comes and takes it away and you're, you're distracted. But eventually it falls into rich soil, into good soil. And that is the heart. So the mantra is now slipping, falling into this, uh, into the heart and it's there that you can say it with less effort and uh, less interruptions and eventually you are better able to listen to it. And then you find as you're waiting for the bus or you're standing in a crowded tube train or uh, when you're preparing the turkey, uh, the mantra will quite naturally arise in the heart and remind you of what is happening there, this birth of the word that is happening in you continuously, continuous prayer. And this is a, this is a very real experience that, that happens quite naturally. It doesn't have to be forced. And um, if you give it a chance, uh, it will happen if you, if you prepare yourself. Meister Eckhart says, I'll come to him after lunch maybe, uh, Meister Eckhart says, well, I can tell you what he says, I think. Um, he says, what does he say? Um, He wrote four sermons, uh, a cycle of four sermons on the eternal birth of the word in the ground of the soul. He probably gave these sermons to his fellow Dominicans. And um, the first thing he, he, he says, that this is inevitable. This is the way it is. If nothing separates the soul from God, then the word is born, now in time. It's born in time and in human nature. We must, however, change for this to happen fully. So there has to be, uh, he uses the word passive, as, uh, as uh, John of the Cross does, but it doesn't mean passive in our sense of being, what, inert or just a lump or just you know a couch potato it's not that kind of passivity it's, um, it's the passivity really of, of active receptivity being alert and awake and but not trying to do anything not trying to make anything happen but it's the passivity or the receptivity of being really attuned and listening and fully conscious, fully awake. And then if, if we come to that, he says, and that's, that's the change that is necessary for us to, to f 
fully realize and become conscious of this birth that is happening in us. So I think you know, that's a, a way of describing what I think any meditator will discover if they do this work and allow this change to happen. Meditation changes your life, or change your daily life. We put up a big resistance at first, actually, usually, to the change in our life that this being drawn to this practice um, uh, opens, suggests, and insists, really. It's not that anybody else is insisting or telling you what you've got to do, it's that you yourself are realizing that if this practice is going to really take you on this journey, then uh, you will need to incorporate it, embody it, and embed it in your life. So the first stage for most people is the first meditation. That's difficult enough. About 10% of the MBA students will meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. They're just the kind of people who will do that. They're disciplined and... But I would say 90% of those MBA students go to the gym every day. They've really built gym practice in, into, into their daily life. So, uh, building meditation into their daily life is, uh, is more challenging. But then, sometimes they compare the two and they'll say, well, you know, I don't, often don't want to go to the gym, but I force myself. So, whatever it is that's driving them to the, to, to the gym, it may be, you know, for many of them it's, it's I think, uh, mental health as well, but it's also, you know, they want to look good and be competitive with other MBA students. So, um, but then they will say, and some days I really don't want to do my workout, but when I do it, I feel better. And that awareness then they apply to meditation. They know that they will come up with all sorts of excuses for not doing meditation. It's not a priority yet. And what John Main says, this is the most, these are the most important times of the day. They don't get that at all. How can these times of meditation be the most important times of the day? So, but anyway, gradually they might begin to learn uh, the, the, the good habit and get the first meditation in. Second meditation, big problem because I'm tired, because I don't know when to do it. And, you know, we, we've all, we, I, I certainly went through that, and I can remember that, I'm sure, I'm sure most of us can. Now, there are some people who, who don't. They just get it straight away, it clicks, it's crystal clear, and they have the kind of temperament and discipline to be able to 
do it from day one, but they're, they're pretty rare, I would say. Anyway, so, but as that uh, uh, practice does become incorporated into daily life, and it teaches you a lot about yourself in learning it, you, you see how your mind plays games with you, how you want to do something, but you don't do it. Why don't you do what you want to do? That's what St. Paul writes about in the letter to the Romans. He sees that as the nature of sin, in fact, this strange division within ourselves that we want to do something, we're quite clear that it's good for us, and yet we don't do it. So, in this process of learning to meditate, we are gaining a lot of self-knowledge, self-awareness, and we're being prepared. And then, all of that time, the seed is growing. So in the parable of the seed, Jesus, uh, of the kingdom, uh, Jesus, where he uses this image of a seed again, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that a man took and planted in the ground. He went to bed at night, he got up in the morning. So he lived an ordinary life. And all the time, the seed was growing how he did not know. So there is a period uh, of time where we feel or sense or we hope that the seed is growing, but we don't know how it is. And you know, we're struggling to do the times of meditation. But then he, he then describes how the signs of growth break the surface. You know, first, just a little shoot, as we'll see in a few months in spring, we begin to see the first little signs of new life breaking through the soil. And then you know, he uses this image of a tree, that the seed, which is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, then becomes this great big tree in which the birds of the air come and nest. So I think what we could see that to mean is that there is a, a hiddenness and an unknowability about this process of growth. On the other hand, it's known by its fruits. And we begin to see uh, changes in ourselves, or other people will point them out to us. And uh, we begin to be aware that we are responding, reacting, to the ordinary circumstances of life, maybe with a little bit more patience or a little more self-awareness, a little more compassion for others. Um, we are able to deal with disappointment more uh, wisely and, uh, and so on. And we may also discover that certain fears, phobias, insecurities, anxieties, that have held us in their grip for many years, perhaps, are beginning to loosen up. And changes take place in us that allow us to be more free, more spontaneous, more expressive, to give ourselves more to the, to the moment or to the people that we're, in, we're with. So I, I think these are the fruits. Um, 
And the, and the mysterious thing is, is that even if your meditation itself may not be giving you great spiritual experiences, uh, nevertheless, you, you continue with the meditation, even during those hidden times where you don't see the growth, because you, you notice the changes that are taking place in you and around you in, in life. Can you summarize the question? Yeah, sorry. Um, he was saying that his, his daughter is, suffers from sort of some obsessive or compulsive thoughts, patterns, and, and uh, when he spoke to her about meditation, or when she meditated, she felt that these, uh, these thoughts were being released uh, and became worse in a way, not so easy to control. Well, I, I think the first thing would be to say, actually, we'll ask Jim, who's uh, just written a book on the subject, uh, Jim Green, to say something about it. But I, I, I would say, first of all, that I think you can't take meditation as, a, as, a, as if it was like an aspirin for a headache, you know. I think it, it is a very wonderful and powerful and natural therapy for the soul and for the whole person. And the benefits can be felt at the physical and psychological and spiritual levels uh, altogether. But in, I think, where there is a part of yourself, the mind, in, in your daughter's case, where there's some dysfunction, there's some trauma, or there's some, something has got stuck or got wrong and repeating itself compulsively, uh, and often linked to other, other things. But um, in that case, a broader, a broader approach to reducing the problem, first of all, uh, needs to be planned, introduced, and meditation, can, I would say, can be part of that from the beginning. But it would be, it would have to be adjusted to to her capacity, and. Uh, I think when the, the mind is in a very anxious state, in a very sort of uncontrolled state, um, then uh, your, your actual capacity to meditate for any period of time may be very limited. So you may have to just do what you can, maybe just a few moments, a few minutes. And also, because it could be, it could be frightening, to her in that, in that state to be, as it were, quiet with herself and all of this stuff would, would come up. Meditating with someone would be very, could be very helpful just to give her that reassurance and that gentle sort of presence. Um, 
So those are, those are the two, two things I would say. Take it slowly but, and make it part of, a, part of the pattern. But it, I, I would say it, it could really be a catalyst for, for a more general therapeutic uh, plan. You know. I think what I, I've seen already at Bombeau through many young people who've come to visit for, you know, sometimes they just come for a, a few weeks and they stay for, has stayed, stayed for a few months. Uh, there, there are, uh, uh, what I've noticed among them, and I would say this is, this is the first thing that they bond with there or connect with there, is the rhythm of life. I think it's, it's astonishing how we've disrupted our life rhythms in you know, urban lifestyle. And, uh, and by rhythm, I just mean basically doing, uh, doing things uh, one after the other in, in a predictable way without trying to do too much. Um, but respecting the, the physical, the mental, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual needs that we have. And that in a, 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 the rhythm of a community life that's based on meditation, that obviously isn't necessarily for everyone for life. But even for a period of time, just to feel that that is possible and it's beneficial and it, it, it carries you. I think it, it gives you hope. It gives people hope that they can get back to a proper balance of, of life. And this spiritual element, the meditation, which of course has benefits at all levels, but is, is often the, the missing element that they haven't been aware of before. But the physical, the intellectual, the social, the communal, the emotional, the relational, I mean, all of that happens in community. Uh, that, that those, those are part of the, the whole rhythm. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. The question was how, how meditation uh, can as I was saying, you know, the most important times of the day uh, and meditation, he, he, Paul was saying, can help to reset and to, and to rebalance uh, uh, the other uh, things that preoccupy us, emotions and or even mental, mental imbalance. Well, I think that's true, of course, but it, you know, it may take few years of meditation before many people come to see that. And I don't know whether uh, it makes sense uh, to people at the beginning that meditation has this sort of uh, overall power to reset the whole system. So, to connect with our true self. To connect with our true self. Yes, but I think that happens by, by, by stages, as, as John of the Cross and all the mystical tradition speaks about stages and steps. Um, the important thing is to start and then to persevere. 
And after you've been on the journey for a bit, you realize that there is a pattern, a life-giving pattern, and there are um, uh, signs that, um, of, of what you describe as the, the sort of re realization of our true nature. That can be a bit painful too, because it, it means you're letting drop, giving up, uh, some of the addictions, attachments, false ideas about ourselves, and false needs, false or fantasies, illusions, and letting go of that is quite painful. Also because we, we don't know, because we've identified, even if they are consciously a source of suffering for us, at least we're familiar with them and to let go of them I, was, I saw this the other day of somebody who, who was being offered by a, a physical therapist, really, a, um, a, a way of... Uh, there had been a very effective diagnosis and a very effective course of treatment and very hopeful presentation of the next step and that this is, you're, you're going to be okay. You're really going to be okay. We know what it is, you can. And I felt, you know, I, I, I could see that it was quite difficult for this person to really believe it. Because we get, we get and we all do, we, we get so entrenched, or stuck in a certain set of impressions and ideas about ourselves and our limitations, it takes a, a deeper moment in the journey, in the process, before the power of the true self can get enough momentum, maybe, to, to explode those attachments and convince us that we can live differently and more, more freely. As we meditate, are we not allowing God to teach us? I think, yes. I think, I, certainly. Yes, yes, we often discover something we didn't know about ourselves uh, through meditation. No, I think meditation is a very powerful teaching. This, when it teaches us through experience, we may have heard these things or read about these things, but meditation makes them true in our own experience, brings them alive. And sometimes I think we can experience something uh, that we've read about or heard about before, um, but we don't even recognize it as it went and as it comes into uh, reality in our own experience. And that's what I think we mean by experience is the teacher. But the, what is experience? The Holy Spirit, we would say, is in that experience. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work from a great, you know, master computer away from us, the Holy Spirit works 
in and with our spirit coming to the aid of our weakness and with a subtle but but tenacious um, love for us and gradually we and it has to be a response we we make intuitively and freely um, we begin to recognize what the experience means and it's um, it, it is it, it is the experience of of being of, of receiving this uh, offer and this gift of love really. let me just re repeat that did you hear that so you, you were saying your name sorry Kerry was saying that uh, she was encouraged by this idea of returning uh, that we were talking about in meditation, returning to the mantra, um, because it's in this returning that, uh, well, to paraphrase what you were saying, maybe uh, we, we change and we, our minds are opened, our hearts are open, and we, we see and experience more. I think that's true. The returning, it's not a mechanical returning to the same place we were before. It's more like the spiral where you're, you're, you're returning, going around and around in the spiral, but the spiral is taking you deeper all the time. And it's a, it's a, crea it's a faithful repetition, not a mechanical repetition. So a mechanical repetition would, would, be, would be life destroying. You know, when people do a job that they hate and have to drag themselves uh, to work every day, uh, that mechanical repetition, just about survival, uh, is, is dispiriting. But faithful repetition, you may be doing the same thing, but you're, you're doing it uh, in a faithful way, connected to the, the the gift that this repetition is releasing for you. So you're, and then that's, that's, that's why Saint Irenaeus says, the beginning is faith, the end is love, and the union of the two is God. So we have to begin in faith. Faith is the gift of, is, 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 is returning to the commitment, to the person, to the relationship, to the practice, to the promise. It's returning to it, staying with it through ups and downs and times of distress or recovering from times of infidelity and getting back. So it begins with a, a journey of faith and St. Paul describes the gospel as a way of salvation that begins in faith and ends in faith. You think of faith in terms of relationship rather than in terms of belief. We're not saved by what we believe. We're saved, healed by, by faith. So faith is our capacity to, uh, to commit ourselves, to give ourselves, and this produces love, or this releases love, faithful love. And it's in that faithful love that we begin to see God.
at work. And that we, at first it may seem as if we're doing all the faith and we're doing all the loving, and, but then we realize actually we've been caught up in a, a faithful love or in a loving fidelity a relationship um, and we're part of that and have been from the very beginning but we didn't see it at the beginning so we don't get there by doing something mechanically uh, or out of fear or obsessively so you can repeat something and return to it addictively or obsessively and it doesn't it won't produce it won't lead us in in on this journey but a faithful returning so returning to the mantra faithfully as i said uh, does this i was looking up the word addiction the other day and then go um, and i was interested to because somebody asked me, is, is, um, can meditation become addictive? And I've never thought of it as an addiction. On the other hand, I wouldn't like to give it up. So, um, so I looked up uh, the etymology of the word addiction. And uh, it actually means to give oneself to. So I think in, if you take that definition, there would be good addictions and bad addictions. So the bad addiction is when you give yourself to something negative and destructive and mechanical, for example, in which you lose your freedom and your joy. Uh, but if you give yourself to the right thing, then uh, of course it produces, it produces um, benefit and uh, flourishing of life.